Many of you heard on Friday, this past Friday, United States Supreme Court ruled to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. Um, um, revoking abortion as a constitutionally protected right and sending the decision on abortion legislation back to the individual states. Uh, I've been reading in the book of First Kings and um, before Friday, I landed in 1 Kings 11, and it makes sense with, um, with what's going on. So I'd like to read that. You can follow along the screen. If you've got your Bibles, you can track there as well. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Kamash, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He, the Lord, had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. What's going on here? Uh, you'll hear that word, Moloch. That was a, a false god, and you can go all the way back to Levit Leviticus 18 when God tells the nation of Israel that they need to be careful in worshiping all these false gods. And um, Moloch was depicted as a human body with a bull's head on it. The statue was usually made of bronze with arms outstretched and a belly that was open that served as a furnace. A disturbing practice of Moloch worship was infant or child sacrifice. Families allowed children to pass through the fire or be burned alive to Moloch to secure favor and prosperity. We know that while idols demand sacrifices, the one true God sacrificed his son Jesus Christ once and for all to pay for the sin penalty for each one of us. He paid it in full. And so what I'd like to point to is Moloch, child sacrifice has been going on for millennial. And when people, when a nation uh, pushes God out of a culture, a, a culture of death moves in. And we can track that even with the United States. 
going back to 1973, I think you, you could see the shift in our culture where life isn't valued the way it should be. And so when God is pushed out, not only when you look at Moloch where infants and children were sacrificed, um, our culture was saying even while God is creating life inside a mother's womb, you can destroy that life. Now think about that. The God of this universe knitting a baby together inside a mother and yet a person can override what God is doing and saying, I'm going to terminate this life. It's, a, it's, a, it's simply a culture of death. And we, as followers of Christ, know the value of life. We should. We know that, first of all, you and I have been made in the very image of God, according to Genesis 1.27. We know that we were made in a very intimate way with the hands of God forming us in Psalm 139. And we also know that Jesus valued children and instructed how they should be cared for in Mark 10. And so I understand in, in an environment like this that it's very possible that there are women here, I know there are women here that have had an abortion. Maybe you're watching online and you have experienced an abortion. I want you to know that having talked to women that have had abortions, that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they've gone to Jesus, confessed that sin, and he's forgiven them. And so they don't carry the guilt, possibly shame, that can come from that experience. And so, listen, we're not here today to look down on anybody because we've experienced, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we all have experienced his forgiveness and his grace. And so this is not a perfect environment by any stretch of the imagination. There is no perfect church. But we're here as people that have been forgiven our sins by Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, yes, um, what happened Friday, it, it, it was encouraging because Psalm 127 says children are a gift from the Lord. I want you to hear, children are a gift from the Lord. And we know in Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you, God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb. You can see the connection that God is always involved in creating life. And we also know that in Proverbs 14.34, godliness makes a nation great. And as Israel, we see it in Solomon, man, where he started out strong, but he drifted. You started worshiping false gods, and it'll take your heart away and harden it to the things of God. And we will do things that we never thought we would ever do. And so may this, the Lord see this landmark ruling as an act of repentance as a nation. May he show us his mercy and restore us, and may a culture of life sweep across this land.
once again. Join me as we talk to the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning for the great love that you have for every individual in this room and those watching online. And we thank you, Lord, that you have created us in your image, that you are the one that breathed life into each one of us. In fact, you're sustaining that life even right now. And Lord, we pray for America. We think of Israel, your chosen people, your nation, and how it drifted away from you and began to worship and sacrifice to idols. And Lord, we don't want that in our country. We want your name to be honored above all else. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that you will show mercy to us. We humble ourselves before you, and may that culture of life spread across this land from sea to shining sea. I thank you for every person, Lord, that's watching, that's here this morning. The hand of God is upon each one of us, for which we're grateful. Our lives, O oh God, are in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing our series on the book of Philippians, and this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians three seventeen through 21. Of course, you should know that because it's in your outline. <laughs> we're going to go out to California where the fire authorities found a corpse in a burnt-out section of a forest while they were assessing the damage done by a forest fire. The deceased male happened to have a full wetsuit on, complete with his dive tank, his flippers, and even his face mask. The post-mortem exam revealed a person didn't die from burns, but from massive internal injuries. The dental records provided a positive ID for him. And so the investigators decided to set out to determine how a fully clad diver ended up in the middle of a forest fire. It was revealed that on the day of the fire, the man went diving off the coast, the west coast, some 20 miles from the forest. The firefighters, looking to control the fire as quickly as possible, called in the fleet of helicopters and large buckets. And the buckets dropped in the ocean for filling, and they flew to the forest fire and emptied the water on it. So our diver was enjoying his dive in the Pacific Ocean one minute, and the next he was trapped in a fire bucket 30 feet in the air, finally getting dropped into the middle of a forest fire. What's the deal? You could say, man, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Or you would say, here's a fully clad diver in the middle of a forest fire. You know, you're out of, 
<laughs> You're out of your environment, so to speak. Well, this morning, we're going to see that we've been dropped in the middle of this world on purpose by God, not to be killed or destroyed, but to make an impact in our culture. And in Philippians 3, 17 through 21, let's read that together. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies, like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Speak to us through your spirit. Change us today, Lord, to be more like you. That's our desire. Make our time this morning be invested for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Knowing where we're going. I tell you, as a man, I hate not knowing where I'm going. How about you? When I go to a place where I've never been before, I can feel the anxiety kind of rise within me. But if I've been somewhere before, I'm very comfortable because I know the environment around me. If I'm going somewhere and I don't know where I'm going and I'm lost and I'm making the wrong turns, and <laughs> how about it? It's not fun. It's not fun. There are a lot of people in our world today that don't know where they're going, friend. Maybe you are here this morning. When you look for all eternity, you don't know where you're going. You've got your fingers crossed because hopefully you're thinking, one day I'll make it to heaven. Donald did a funeral a few weeks ago. And the person that passed away was not a follower of Christ, but it was Donald mentioned how it was interesting that everybody's talking about they're in a better place, you know, they're in heaven. How is it with you this morning? Do you know for sure where you're going? Well, man, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to find out we have the confidence, man. We know where we're going, without a doubt. And so we see that Paul had just finished up telling us how to follow good models because knowing Christ more, desiring to learn more about Christ, act on what we say we believe, our actions follow our words, and we run to win to finish the race. That's our goal. And so we see in verse 14, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. So in this text, Paul is give, presenting us good examples and bad examples, and uh, hopefully we can learn from his writing. Now, 
We notice, we're going to get to this in a, in a moment, that Paul was weeping. And uh, when you think of the Apostle Paul, that's something that maybe you don't visualize happening in his life. Because the dude has definitely suffered a lot. And yet we see he's got a tender heart. 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, he's Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. Who's the officer? It's Jesus Christ. When you, he's saying, when you put your faith in Christ, we should not get caught up in life on this planet where it consumes us. It just It's on our mind day and night. Paul is saying, don't let that happen. Because if you let it happen, you're not pleasing Jesus Christ who enlisted you. So, number one in your notes, a call for imitation. I know we hit uh, this verse a little bit uh, a few weeks ago. We're going to pick it up again. Paul knows from experience that to grow and mature in our walk with Christ, we need to hang around other believers that are growing as well. It's good. It's good to do that. He says, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. It means that word pattern means to become like, but also to obey, to obey God's word. The attic word example means a model, a blueprint. In other words, we use that example to follow after in our individual lives. And Paul is always focused on Jesus Christ, and he's urging the believers at Philippi to follow his example as he is living for Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, and you should imitate me just as, as I imitate Christ. The NIV says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 16, so I urge you to imitate me. I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if we can, with confidence, say, imitate me. Follow my example. Are we living our lives in such a way where we could look into somebody's eyes and say, imitate me, follow my example? Hopefully, as a father and a mother, you can do that to your children. I'm not a perfect parent, but I'm telling you, you follow my example. Because I'm pursuing Christ. And that will pay off in life. You will never regret it. So we can't afford to put that responsibility on somebody else. We need to step up and do that. Paul says in verse 17b, and learn from those who follow our example. Ours include Timothy and Epaphroditus, other spiritual leaders at the church of Philippi when Paul was there. They pursued Christ together, and they hung out together. They ran together spiritually. We need to do the same. And so, what Paul is saying, attempt to imitate Christ just as I am. Now, Paul's 800 miles away from the church at Philippi. Back in March, uh, my grandson was almost 800 miles away. He was just 770 miles away on vacation. And I called him on his birthday. And I said to him, 
I can see you with my glasses on. Kind of freaked them out, you know. Like, what kind of glasses does grandpa have, man? <laughs> I was just messing with them, you know. Just messing with them. You can do that. Paul is saying, hey, hey, I'm 800 miles away. Look at me. In other words, go back in time 10 years when I was in Philippi, how I lived my life in front of you, how I set the example in pursuing Christ. He's saying, go back in your mind and remember that example that I set for you. You see, the Gospels were not in circulation back then. You couldn't say, hey, you need to read your Bible to learn more about Jesus. Those weren't printed yet. And so Paul was saying, because they, had, they didn't have that opportunity to read more about Christ, he urged them to imitate himself and those eyewitnesses who had seen Christ come out of that grave. And so imitation is very important in our culture. It's interesting, too, that as parents, have you noticed how many parents have written books about their lives and handed it over to their son and daughter and said, read about me? There's not too many books like that published, are there? Because we're a living book as a parent. We are living our lives in front of our children. And we're saying, take notes on how I live my life and follow my example. That's exactly what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi. Now, we know John Shula, who began coaching the Miami Dolphins, he showed them the film of the National League champion Baltimore Colts his first year. The Dolphin players not only watched the Colt players execute plays with precision, but also watched them encourage each other between plays, helping each other up and high-fiving along the way. Shula then challenged his Dolphin squad to imitate the Colts, both during the play and after the whistles were blown. That's the way to become champions, he told his team. Shula coached them from 1970 to 1995. He became the first NFL coach to win 100 games in 10 seasons. In 1972 and 73, the Dolphins became the first and only team in the NFL to go undefeated through a regular season and through the playoffs, culminating in the Super Bowl victory. The Dolphins won it all again the following year and twice reached the Super Bowl again before Shula retired after the 1995 season with an NFL record of 328 wins. Shula was right. You look at a champion to become a champion, right? That's where Paul's coming from. Follow my example. And so we need to be wise, don't we? and who we hang with, who we listen to. That leads us to number two, enemies on the loose, verse 18 and 19. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. The reason why Paul was challenging the church at Philippi because he had heard that, well, 
there were people that were overthrowing the gospel. They were replacing it with a false doctrine, false teaching. And we'll drill down into more specifics on that. But he says there's enemies in the camp. Well, last Wednesday, man, there was an enemy in the camp down in Florida. It was a python, the heaviest ever snake captured in Florida, weighing 215 pounds. It's an enemy on the loose, right? A team of biologists hauled in the heaviest Burmese python ever captured in Florida. Female python weighed 215 pounds, 18 feet long. 122 developing eggs within her. Creepy, man. Yeah, it's creepy. That's creepy. I'm thinking, I'm so glad I live in Wisconsin. I'm so grateful for cold winters, man. <laughs> well, Burmese pythons, what are they doing in Florida? Well, they were first introduced back in 1970. They were pets to individuals who got tired of taking care of them, and they released them into the, yeah, the wetlands of Florida. Well, ever since they've been severely impacting the native ecosystem, and since their introduction, they've feasted on native wildlife, such as white-tailed deer, making it a major issue in preserving the wetlands. It's an enemy on the loose. Somebody thinks I'll just let my, my pet go into the, you know, into the swamps of Florida. Oh, man, they reproduce crazy. And uh, so Florida's doing something about it. They've taken steps. Now, there's another, there's another enemy on the loose. And uh, <clears throat> in Hanu uh, Hawke's book, Only Believe, which Dave Ogren uh, represents that ministry, Great Commission Media, Hanu talks about Vladimir Grigorov. He said, uh, Vladimir said, I have worked for the KGB in their department responsible for religion. I was with the infamous fifth section, which keeps tabs on all ideological activity hostile to the state. And to us, Christianity was definitely hostile. I was sent to Finland to gather intelligence on your ministry with which it could be destroyed. Hanu, of all foreign missionary groups involved in the USSR, the KGB feared you the most. You are the number one enemy. Now, Vladimir continues talking to Hanu. He says, please forgive me for what I've done to you. I have spied on you for many years. I lied to you when I said I had been a Christian for five years. I've been a Christian for only one year. I became a Christian while working on your case. I can no longer continue to work for the KGB, and so I cannot return to the Soviet Union. And if I did return, they would either shoot me or put me in a mental asylum. Vladimir also seemed to know the names of a number of so-called moles operating in the Soviet churches. A mole is an undercover KGB spy sent into the Christian community or a church 
disguised as a believer for the task of gathering ideological intelligence. And so that's going on. We know it's going on in many countries around the world right now. And so what Paul is saying, basically, we've got some moles going on in the church, and they're undercutting the integrity of God's word. They're enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, when I see what's going on, when I'm hearing what's going on, tears in my eyes, I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are so many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. With tears in my eyes, literally that means I speak weeping. Mm. You can imagine Paul as he's writing this letter or dictating the letter, tears falling from his eyes, thinking about the condition of the church at Philippi where it's under attack, it's under assault. Friend, we need to pause even our own individual lives to evaluate what's going on. Are we being compromised? Are we drifting like Solomon? Paul had a heart of compassion. And I, I have to be honest with you as well, man. Over the years, when you see people you've invested in and you've had relationships with, and you see maybe decisions they make, you know, where they drift, start drifting from God, I tell you, man, it grieves you. It does. And when you've grieved in your personal life, you know the pain that you feel in your heart. You can imagine the heart of God grieving over the people he's created that have pushed them away or rejected him along the way. May it be our goal, our desire, not to grieve the Spirit of God. How about it? Yeah. Let's live for him with integrity. And so Paul is saying, man, there's enemies in the cross. And uh, notice these people are in the church. They're enemies of the cross. Their attempts to nullify the sacrifice of Jesus Christ saddened Paul. And uh, he's not talking about unbelievers by the way, in the church, he's talking about believers. Elton Trueblood, who was a 20th century author and theologian, put it this way, our main mission field today, as far as America is concerned, is within the church membership itself. Well, Billy Graham kind of added on to that. He said, our crusades, when he was alive, find that the greatest challenge and the greatest response from among church members. That's why we always invite different churches into our crusades. We know a lot of people who come weren't really saved, but we wanted them to hear the gospel. So to be in opposition against the cross is when somebody says, I don't need God's forgiveness. And they turn their back on God's grace. And they walk away from having a relationship with God. That was going on in the church at Philippi. Number two, not only are there enemies of the cross, they're separated from God forever. 
Paul says in verse 19, they are headed for destruction. That word destruction does not mean annihilation. Rather, it means being eternally separated from God. We go to Revelation 20, picking it up at verse 11, at the end of time when every person that lived will stand before the white throne judgment seat. If your name's not in the book of life. If your name is in the book of life, you will not stand there. But instead, at the judgment seat of Christ, there were Romans 14.10 talks about. Check this out. And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what Paul is talking about. They are headed for destruction. They have made a decision to reject God, and instead they're, they're living a false gospel and spreading it throughout the church. And he's saying their ultimate goal will be they will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. Number three, stuck in personal pleasure. Their God is their appetite. Now, when you think, I know when I first read that, I thought, man, you know, I do like spaghetti and meatballs. You know, that's my appetite. I do like pasta. I kind of lean into that. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about sensual lust. He's talking about physical desires where they're self-indulgent. They're, they're focusing on themselves. They're living their lives in such a way to please themselves. Instead of denying their self in order to live for Christ, that's not happening. Anyone who is exposed to the world of unbelievers knows this phrase, I eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, you satisfy whatever you want in your life, no matter whatever it may cost you. That's in vogue today as well. Sensuality is the fuel that lights the fire. What Paul is talking about, it becomes a god. It displaces the one true god. Number four, promoting self, they brag about shameful things. In other words, instead of promoting God, man, which is what we want to do at Life Church, we want to lift him up. We want to allow him to live in and through us. They brag about themselves. They talk about how cool they are and their accomplishments. They pride themselves in things that they should be ashamed of. They brag about their freedom spiritually, but in reality, they are slaves to their passion of sin. Paul is addressing that, and he does at the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And that's where sin leads, man. 
your heart becomes hardened, calloused to the things of God. So instead of the church being horrified, they're proud of their tolerance and their compromise. Just sad. That's not going to lead to spiritual maturity. That's why Paul's addressing it. And number five, earthbound thinking, and they think only about this life here on earth. So when atheists, and, and we could go agnostics, and we can go down the trail with where people land in their, you know, their, their choices, their decisions, when somebody thinks that when I die here, that's the end of the story, I can live my life however I want to without taking the responsibility that one day you will stand before God and give an account of your life. You can't escape that. But for the atheists, they don't have that in their mind. They block it out on purpose. And so they can live how they want without any consequences. And Paul is warning them. You get so caught up in the here and the now that you're not thinking about eternity. Your soul, the condition of your soul. Such an attitude will draw people's focus away from Christ. And Paul addresses that in Colossians 3, 2. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Listen, man, I, I get it. We're on this planet. I got to pay my phone bill, you know. I've got to buy my food. I got to put gas in the tank. That's, that's the world, right? Yeah. Paul's not saying go out in some uh, middle of the desert and dig a hole and you know, wait for Jesus to come. No, we're living our lives. But he's saying, don't let the, the morality, the core values of this culture in our world get into your being to where they influence you. You, as a follower of Jesus, need to influence those around you. That's what he's talking about. And so that leads us to number three, Main point, but <laughs> knowing where I'm going, verse 20. Paul transitions here. You know, he's kind of focused on the bad, the good, bad, and the ugly. The good, no, not the good. Not, he's just landing on the bad and the ugly. And now he's coming back to the good. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. My favorite word there is but. That's why we put it in, because <laughs> it kind of gets your attention. Paul's kind of going down this trail with enemies on the loose, and he's saying, but that's not the end of the story. But as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. That's where we are, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we eagerly are waiting for him to return as our Savior. So notice Paul is switching from the negative to the positive. He's moving from earthbound focus to and the enemies of the cross to the realities that we have as a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. At the end of the day, that's where we're going. So heaven is my home. Look at verse 20a. We are citizens of heaven. This is the verse where Paul is explaining why his readers should follow his example. They should follow Christ because they know what will happen at the end of the day. 
they're going to go to heaven. So citizenship was something cool in Philippi. It was a Roman colony, even though we can take a look at a map here. Um, uh, so Rome, that's where Paul is under house arrest. Philippi is right here. It's 800 miles away. Philippi, even though it was 800 miles from Rome, it was considered a Roman colony. The Roman influence had reached that far in that culture. When somebody from Rome would visit Philippi, they would feel right at home. The same restaurants, the same malls, the same kind of police, you know. Everything was kind of the same. Yeah, I feel just like I'm in Rome here. That's what Paul is writing about. But he's saying, you may be proud to be a Roman citizen in Philippi, but let me tell you something else, man that you should really get fired up over. You are a citizen of heaven. And don't let your citizenship of being a Rome, Roman citizen override the priority in your life. First and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. And that is how you should live your life. Don't get caught up in Rome. Yeah, it's a, it was the world power back in the day. But let me tell you, man, Rome is going to go away, which it did. If you visit Rome today, I'll tell you this. You could go down through the city and you'll see their parks where they don't even mow the grass anymore over there. They're letting it go. Can I tell you something? The grass in heaven's going to be mowed, <laughs> manicured. How about it? Yeah, man. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Paul is saying, man, you have a higher citizenship than Rome. You are citizens of heaven. Just like your Roman citizenship can dictate how you live and how you behave, that's how it should be as a citizen of heaven, man. That should always be on your mind. Am I representing the kingdom of God well? And accurately. Our names uh, are in the book of life. I was thinking about, you know, when, you, when you're born, there's a birth certificate registered on legal records. When a sinner puts their faith in Jesus Christ, their name is in the book of life. Philippians 4.3, we'll get to that in a few weeks whose names are written in the book of life. You'll see that throughout the Bible, the book of life, the book of life. Because if your name's not in there, man, you're not going to get into heaven. It's that simple. Citizenship is important. None of us want to suffer the fate of Philip Nolan in the classic tale, The Man Without a Country, do we? Because he cursed the name of his country, this is in the early 1800s, Nolan was sentenced to live aboard a ship and never again see his native land or even hear its name or news about its progress. For 56 years, man, he went from ship to ship, never putting his foot on ground again where he was finally buried at sea. He was a man without a country. Paul is saying, man, you are a citizen of heaven. That's your country. And your name, when you put your faith in Christ, 
is in the book of life. So, final entrance into the heavenly country, Revelation 2015. We hit this earlier. Anyone whose name was not on recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Paul is saying, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we realize he paid for our sin dead in full, we agree with that. We ask him to forgive us of our sins. Our name is written in that book. If you ever go to Chicago, you can go to Chinatown. And Chinatown is a ethnic community where Chinese from China have come and they've landed and they call it Chinatown. And they've got restaurants that they would have in China and they have other things going on. It reminds them it's a little community of China. My grandparents, when they left Hungary, they landed in Chicago and they landed in a Hungarian community. And you see that pockets of countries around the world in these major cities. Friend, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have a heaven colony wherever we go. And it's our responsibility to represent Jesus Christ well. Number two, we see that Jesus lives there. Look at verse 20b, and where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. That's where we're going. For John 14, 2, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I tell you, man, I love that verse. Because if God didn't love you, he would not want you to be with him forever. Right? That's right. He must love you, and he must love me if he wants to hang out with me forever. And what a day that's going to be because he's going to come get us and bring us where he is. Number three, waiting for Christ. Verse 20, C, we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. That word eagerly waiting, is, it's the imagery is really cool. It suggests a tiptoe anticipation and longing. It, it indicates like a child on their tiptoes looking out the front window waiting for their dad to come home after a day's work. I miss you so much. That's the kind of attitude we should be having as followers of Christ. Paul is saying we are eagerly waiting. It's not one of this, man, I hope he doesn't come back today because I'm messed up. See? No, eagerly waiting. Max Cicado talks about it when he landed in San Antonio Airport. The wheels hit the runway. As soon as that happened, he said, you could start hearing those seatbelts on clicking. A voice came over the intercom, please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened until the plane comes to a complete stop. Yeah, nobody was paying attention, he said. People were already out of their seats. They were collecting their overhead compartments, getting their stuff out. Why? Why, why are they doing that? Because they're, they're almost home. Their final destination isn't the plane. They wanted to get off the plane and get home to where those who love them were. He says, I didn't see any stewardesses having to struggle to pull people out of their seats with 
People going, wait a minute, these seats are so comfortable. I want to hang around this plane a few hours more. No, no, that wasn't happening. They were home and they wanted to get off the plane as quick as they could. That's the kind of mindset as followers of Christ, Paul is saying. We are eagerly awaiting the coming of our Lord. And we look forward to it. So, Paul presses on. Chandra Drury tells when she was working in a nursery at our church, and by the way, we're so grateful for all the volunteers here that do that. She overheard a three-year-old girl talking to her mom. Mommy, when Jesus takes us to heaven, will I have to go to the nursery? (laughs) That's a good question. Good question. We'll find out, won't we? Indeed. Number four, anticipating the great transformation. Verse 21, he will take our weak mortal bodies. Well, and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. You think about this. Paul is talking about pressing on, continuing in your journey, uh, getting to know Jesus more and more, letting him change us into his image more and more. That's a lifelong process, right? But the transformation, when Jesus comes, it's going to be instant. It's not going to be a 10-year plan. You know, you got to work your way into your new body. No, no, no. It's going to be instantaneous. 2 Corinthians 4, why, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Why don't we get all freaked out with what's going on in our world today? Because our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Isn't that great news? We look to heaven. We keep our eyes on Christ. We remind ourselves that our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven, where we're going to be one day. And so Paul mentions that believers will receive their glorified bodies like the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Verse 53, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies that will live forever and ever. It's great news. Every believer, every follower of Christ will have a glorified body. And so, what does that look like? 1 John 3, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like. 
when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation, there it is again, will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Because we know we're going to see Jesus, we're not perfect, but we're pursuing the character of Jesus Christ. We're pursuing to become more like Jesus and modeling after him. And so, as citizens of heaven, man, Jesus, that name that's above every name, where every knee's going to bow one day, every tongue's going to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. We get to serve him. We get to live, look forward to seeing him one day. And so, here's a good question. Am I living as a citizen of heaven? Good question. Am I? Yes or no? Or have, is my citizenship getting locked into only on earth, here and now? Am I spending time, all my time, on the temporal things here and now? Or on my eternal soul. Mark 8.36, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? But you lose your own soul. That's where Paul was going with this in Philippians 3. Eric Barker was a missionary who spent 50 years serving in Portugal in the years leading up to World War II and beyond. What was a challenging mission field in the best times became even more stressful as the war gained momentum. At some point, things became so dangerous in Portugal that Eric was advised, you know, you need to send your wife, your eight children, by boat to England. They need to get out of here for their own safety. Eric had a sister who had her three children there in Portugal. And so he loaded these 13 people the people he treasured most in the world, onto a ship and watched it steam out of sight. Eric's plan was, as soon as he tidied things up in Portugal on the mission base, that he would take a ship and he would catch up with his family in England. The Sunday after his family departed was like a Sunday like most others, except for the telegram that he shared shortly before the service began. A telegram he shared with his congregation, he said, I've just received word that all my family have arrived safely home. The congregation, man, they breathed a sigh of relief. And the service continued. It was only after the service where the full meaning of Eric's words were known to the congregation. Safely home didn't mean safely in England. Just before the meeting, Barker learned that a German U-boat had torpedoed the ship carrying his family, and there were no survivors. His wife, their eight children, his sister, and her three children were all lost. But Barker knew exactly where they were. They were indeed safely home with the Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven. How is it with you this morning? Father, we thank you for Paul's encouraging words, Lord, as he looked 
realistically at the condition of the church at Philippi. And Lord, he didn't uh, put his head in the sand and rose-colored glasses, everything's cool, but he addressed the fact that there were enemies of the cross that were undermining the integrity of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, we know that one day we will stand before you as followers of Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. For those that have rejected you, they will stand at the white throne judgment seat. And the question is, is my name in the book of life? And if not, I pray for every person watching online and those inside this auditorium this morning that they would say, Jesus, I recognize that you went to the cross and you paid my sin debt in full. And this morning, I say yes to you, Lord. I trust you that you will forgive all my sin, that my name will be written in the book of life. And I pray that I will live for you all the rest of my days through the power of your spirit. So Jesus, thank you for the great price and sacrifice you did and made for me. Why? Because you want me to be where you are for all eternity. What a gift. What a gift, Lord. We say thank you. And Lord, as your followers this morning, may we keep our eyes on you always and remind ourselves that we are citizens of heaven. Yes, we are. May we represent you well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.